1: Cases of COVID-19 are declining across much of the country, but that's not the case in Colorado. On today's show, we look into a few key metrics that have health officials concerned. Plus, we discuss a handful of local issues appearing on the November ballot. And we explore the impact of supply chain disruptions and labor shortages on school lunch programs. That's coming up. This is KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Across much of the country, coronavirus cases are declining after spiking in September. But Colorado is not following the trend. In Larimer County, masks are once again required in all indoor spaces as of today. Health officials say that 30 to 35 percent of the county's population remains unvaccinated. Larimer's public health director, Tom Gonzalez, says overburdened hospitals are the reason for the directive.
2: The analogy I've been using is this uh, is a rubber band that's being stretched and it can only be stretched for so long when
3: it breaks. We have got to give a break to our healthcare care providers in the hospital so they can continue to treat all medical urgencies within our community as well as those Situations that have been put off, such as elective procedures.
1: KUNC's Michael Deoana has been looking into a few key coronavirus metrics, from hospitalizations to cases among children that have health officials across the state concerned. And he joins us now. Hi, Michael.
3: Hello, Aaron.
1: So this fall is a huge contrast to a year ago. Many schools are back in session. Sports stadiums are filled with fans. It very much feels like people have moved on from the pandemic. Yet at the same time, we keep hearing advisories from health officials to wear masks to avoid COVID.
3: Yeah. You know, it can be confusing Uh, as a lot of places get back into full swing. About a week ago, the state hit a milestone of 8,000 COVID deaths since the pandemic began. Um, And since that time, another 120 Coloradans have died. Uh, Meanwhile, there's this patchwork of rules out there. Many of the most populated counties in the state have some kind of local health orders in place like mask requirements, but some don't.
1: Yes, like Boulder has some local orders in place. And as we mentioned, Larimer County re-implemented a mask mandate today. But across the county line in Weld, there are no orders.
3: Yeah, and schools have mask requirements in counties that might not.
1: Now, cases have been declining in some notable states like New York, California and Florida. What's happening in
3: Colorado? There are a handful of states where the pandemic is still hitting hard. Uh, Colorado jumped from 41st to 14th in the country. A part of why that happened is that cases in other states are declining, so that might not uh, be as alarming as it sounds. Yet, what is telling to health officials are certain metrics like hospitalizations. Colorado has been hovering close to 1,000 COVID-19 hospitalizations for about a week, and that's the most patients since last year when vaccines first arrived and were only available to uh, people like hospital workers and nursing home patients. Uh, Here's Scott Bookman, the state's COVID incident commander. He's talking about hospitalizations in a press conference. And that is actually uh, the highest we have seen uh, this entire year. Uh, We actually have to go back into December of 2020 to find a time that we had more people hospitalized with COVID. And so uh, this is a stubborn plateau. Uh, Hospitalizations are continuing to rise. uh, And it is really important that we continue to do all that we can to protect our hospital capacity. As much as protecting hospital capacity is an emergency management issue, it is also affected by everyday actions taken by ordinary people, like wearing masks and social distancing. Bookman said, and if, if you recall, um, it was a fear of hospitals filling up that led to lockdowns early in the pandemic. So, to be clear, the the state's hospitals are far from that point. Yet, 27% of hospitals are predicting a shortage of ICU beds this week. And about nine of 10 ICU beds in the state are taken up right now, both by COVID and non-COVID patients.
1: So as hospital beds fill up, I wonder how much difference vaccines are making. Does the data give any indication?
3: It does indicate that vaccines are working by several metrics, including looking at the most severe cases, which are the hospitalizations that we've been talking about today. About 77 to 78% of people currently hospitalized for COVID were not vaccinated. On one hand, you know, this shows that the vaccine is not a surefire guarantee against getting infected with COVID and having it be so serious that a hospitalization is required. But the data also show that people who are not vaccinated are at a higher risk for hospitalization.
1: Right, and of course, we're seeing more people getting vaccinated now, especially as mandates take effect.
3: Yeah, the mandates, uh, of course, are controversial to some people. As we know, some workers have even quit their jobs rather than be vaccinated. One reason for the mandates is that health officials say that the more people who are vaccinated, the less likely the virus will spread. About 71 percent of people eligible to be vaccinated in the state are now fully vaccinated, according to the state.
1: But Colorado is still struggling right now with cases and mask orders. Now, you also looked into how the virus is hitting kids in schools.
3: Yeah, coronavirus is spreading fastest among K through 12 kids. As we know, uh, vaccines are only available to kids 12 years old or older. Here's uh, Dr. Rachel Herlihy, the state's epidemiologist, talking about that.
1: Um, But as we've seen for many weeks, the rates continue to be highest among our six to 11-year-olds, followed by the 12 to 17-year-olds, followed by the adults. And then the lowest rates continue to be among our preschool-aged children, so zero to five-year-olds.
3: This time frame mirrors kids' return to school this fall. In September, as classes were getting into full swing around the state, you might remember that I came on to Colorado Edition to talk about outbreak data for K-12 through schools. As of the first week of September, coronavirus infections for students and teachers were rising fast compared to August. 80 schools had 886. COVID cases among students and staff. So what I did was I looked back into those numbers and now cases have risen by fourfold. There are 3,453 cases among students and staff at 199 schools. So health officials warn that the virus is still out there and they worry about another surge, hoping one won't happen, and they are closely watching the data.
1: And we will be watching as well. Michael DeOanna is KUNC's investigative reporter. Thanks so much, Michael. You're welcome you can go more in depth with these numbers and see if your school is one of those with a COVID outbreak at our website, KUNC.org. And on Wednesday morning, the White House said it is ready to quickly roll out COVID vaccines for kids age 5 to 11, pending a recommendation from the CDC and the expected FDA authorization of the Pfizer vaccine for that age group. Election Day is now a little less than two weeks away. Ballots have been mailed to eligible voters, along with the statewide voter guide known as the Blue Book. In addition to the three statewide measures, voters also have a fair number of local issues to decide. We're joined now by Kevin Bomber, Executive Director of the Colorado Municipal League, to discuss a few of them. Kevin, thanks so much for being here.
2: Thanks. I appreciate you having me on.
1: Before we dive into any of the specific ballot questions, are there any trends that you're noticing this year in terms of what cities or other municipalities are asking voters to decide?
2: Well, one thing we noticed right off the bat is just the sheer number of questions that are on municipal ballots this year. Um, uh, Over uh, 125 municipal ballot questions are being considered across the state. That's huge. Um, And there's some reasons for that, I think. And then also um, we we noticed uh, a significant number of housing questions on the ballot, uh, which is why we highlighted those uh, in our election release. that went out as the number one item on that list.
1: Hmm. Well, let's talk about that because, uh, you know, questions relating to housing, not uncommon, but to have this many on uh, on the ballot in Colorado is unusual.
2: It's unusual, but I think it reflects what's going on statewide. Uh, You know, everyone thinks about housing crunch in just like resort towns or whatever, but we know from our outreach that uh, around the state this fall that uh, these are issues that are going on in municipalities of all sizes. It's not just affordable housing, um, it's workforce housing, it's uh, the availability of housing. You know, in large part due to the uh, housing stock being reduced because of short-term vacation rentals. Uh, You see a lot of questions on the ballot related to that uh, specifically. And again, not just in resort communities, which is significant.
1: Right, Boulder voters are considering an initiative to uh, increase the number of people allowed to reside in housing units. Denver is looking at a referendum on an ordinance that limits how many unrelated adults can live in a household. Is this indicative of what we were just talking about, this kind of trend?
2: A little bit indicative, you know, those being um, uh, initiated measures or forcing a referendum on decisions that were made by the municipality, or in the case of Boulder, not made by the municipality to expand the number of homes. That's a little bit different, but obviously local, control is local control whether it happens at the ballot box uh, by the will of the voters through initiative and referendum or by the city councils making decisions themselves
1: well let's talk about marijuana because there are some uh, standard marijuana related questions uh related to cannabis businesses in cities like westminster wellington and golden what's being considered at the local level right now
2: well everyone always wants to talk about marijuana and i'm not even sure it's news anymore Aaron. it's uh I mean, in 2013, uh, when Amendment 64 became effective, you know, the the general rule was if you weren't out, you were in. So you had municipalities and counties around the state, for the most part, opting out or um, uh, that had moratorium in place while they were trying to determine what to do. So you know, here just eight short years later, you see a slow and steady uh, march of municipalities that are saying, "Well, should we?" or asking voters, which is almost always what happens. You know, if we do, how much? And if we are going to, can we tax it? And and so that's, you know, uh, that's probably the one predictable thing on the ballot is about four or five marijuana questions in municipalities around the state.
1: Yeah, it's like cities or towns thinking, hey, maybe we are missing out on some of this revenue.
2: It's not only that, it's also uh, looking and seeing how other uh, municipalities uh, have done it, um, what their experience has been learning, uh, and also, you know, being cautious about the what, what the General Assembly continues to open up and of course all the recent legislation uh, for common consumption areas and delivery and all that has heavy, heavy local control and opt in so there, there are a lot of uh, cards to play in municipalities and counties about what to do and how much. Denver is also considering
1: an initiative that would raise the marijuana sales tax to fund pandemic research. And that got me wondering, how do you think the pandemic has impacted what has made it onto ballots this year?
2: I think that has a significant impact in that sheer number of questions because you see a lot, not only with housing, but with the uh, tax and bond issues, with um, uh, revenue retention questions and debt obligation. So much of that is related to really three things. Uh, open space and trails, infrastructure and public safety. I guess that's four things. But uh, but uh, I, I see that as sort of um, uh, the floodgate releasing on things that were uh, held back because no one was sure what was going to happen in 2020. And uh, and so now that there's some surety in terms of not only municipal finances but uh, but you know the the, the future uh, state potential coupling with state assistance, etc. You're starting to see all of those questions that maybe would have been spread out over time appearing on on ballots this year.
1: Lots of communities are also considering charter amendments. Can you briefly explain, first of all, what it means to amend a city charter?
2: Well, a a home rule charter, and there's 104 home rule municipalities in Colorado, severance just uh, being the latest one in a recent special election. uh, uh, They are governed by a home rule charter that is uh, created by a charter commission and approved by voters It's like a local constitution. So anytime uh, there's a proposed change, it has to be approved by voters, just like we uh, have to approve state constitutional changes at the ballot box.
1: I also saw that Lafayette and Westminster are considering updating their charters to be gender neutral. Is this common?
2: Well, I mean, a lot of these charters were written in, uh, in olden times where you saw uh, male pronouns used exclusively in, you know, like in legislation, uh, state at the statewide level in uh, ordinances and certainly in charters. And of course, with charters, you have to get voter approval to change them. So uh, it, going to gender, gender neutral requires a vote of the people. It's not exactly exciting and sexy, but it certainly um, is, is appropriate. And, you, and we've seen municipalities do this with their charters uh, if they weren't already gender neutral.
1: Well, Kevin, just to wrap up here, are there any questions in particular uh, at the local level that you are going to be watching closely on November 2nd?
2: You know, I'm a nerd for all of this stuff. So, uh, you know, I like watching how different issues or rather the same issues in different communities play out. Uh, You can have an identical question in uh, five different municipalities, but the local politics and their history and all that has everything to do with how the, the question turns out and, and, uh, and how things go forward. So uh, I, I think for me personally, because housing is such a critical issue right now, and I think folks understand that, and I'd always agree on what the solutions are, uh, I, I particularly am gonna keep an eye on how those uh, short-term rental questions go. Um, and, uh, and anything that uh, is uh, asking to raise revenue for housing availability uh, or improvements.
1: Kevin Balmer is the Executive Director of the Colorado Municipal League. Kevin, thank you so much for talking with us. You
2: bet. Thanks for having me on.
1: You can find our coverage of the three statewide ballot measures at our website, KUNC.org. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Breakdowns in food supply chain systems are causing shortages in breakfast and lunch programs at schools across the country, including in Colorado. This means schools are having to change and pare down daily menus for students in addition to dealing with staff shortages in cafeterias. Beth Wallace is the Executive Director for Food and Nutrition Services at Jefferson County Schools. She's also the President of the National School Nutritional Association, and she joins us now to talk about what's happening in school cafeterias. Beth, thank you so much for talking with us today.
0: It's my pleasure to join.
1: Now, early on in the pandemic, it was very common to see a lot of empty shelves in grocery stores food supply chain systems were disrupted stores couldn't keep certain products in stock as easily and of course I'm thinking of toilet paper and you know hand sanitizer for the most part now when you go to the grocery store you're not seeing those empty shelves but it sounds like food supply chains have been disrupted in other ways what does this look like in schools? How do you see this happening in Jefferson County's breakfast and lunch programs?
0: So, last year in the retail market, you know, they were struggling to get products in, people were grabbing whatever they could, and we saw shortages all over the retail market. And in the school market last year, our shelves were packed with products because in the school market, we buy a lot of supplies because we've got to be ready for the school year and we serve you know, a large volume of kids. However, due to the pandemic and a lot of uh, remote learning and things like that, our shelves became overstocked and we couldn't even complete some of our orders that we had projected to our manufacturers. So manufacturers, you know, we're not selling our products and they had to shift because the demand in the retail, because we use the same manufacturers. Um, it's just uh, the manufacturer makes a K-12 product versus a retail product. So they just shifted their manufacturing to focus on the retail products. And so, you know, the boomerang effect, now we don't have any products, you know, because the, the shift, the Retail needs it. Retail's buying it. Food service in the K twelve world was not buying it, and so now we're experiencing, you know, the shortage on our end.
1: Now, what kinds of things have been especially difficult to get for you?
0: Dairy has been difficult, and we can talk about fluid milk. Um, we can talk about cheese. Uh, those types of products, dairy, dairy has been difficult sometimes chicken is difficult sometimes we've had problems with some of our fruits and vegetables you know to be clear in jefferson county we get our products for the most part and they our vendors are very good at telling us you're no longer going to ha- get this product but we have an alternate product for you but we may not get the volume we're expecting jefferson county buys truckloads of foods every day And we may have ordered 300 cases of something and maybe 75 showed up.
1: How do you adjust when you're not able to get all the items that you need?
0: It comes with very strong communication with our suppliers. And, you know, if they're only going to be able to send us 75 cases of something we've ordered 300 of, then we're like, well, what do we have that we can substitute either on hand. We have a central warehouse, so we have the advantage of that. Or we're talking with our supplier. Uh, you know, do you have a suggestion for us? What do you have? What can you bring us? And so we used to do things like projections and ordering projections. Now our suppliers want an order. They want a confirmed order. They don't want projections. They want to. They want you to give a purchase order for what you will purchase, because projections was just helping them order things and have them in stock. And now we've moved to they want an order from us.
1: Right. You know, an article in Newsweek I was looking at um, found that in some states like Alabama, these issues are so severe that districts are considering a return to remote learning as a last resort because of this, would that be a possibility in Colorado or are, are we in a different kind of shape here?
0: I'm, I'm never going to say never, ever again, because uh, I was thinking this was going to be a great year and I couldn't even envision uh, what we're, we're in right now. But the um, staffing crisis that we're in is very, very widespread. And I'm not sure everybody understands how widespread that is. So even when you're just talking at school level, we're talking food service staffing, we're talking transportation staffing, we're talking safety and security staffing. So if a district were to be making that type of decision, it's gonna be multifaceted as to where their staffing struggles are. And, you know, just as I described the food supply chain shortages, you know, they may not be able to get the boxes they need to put their food in because the boxing company has staffing shortages. Or they may not be able to get the produce they need from the farmer because there's shortages and drivers to bring that product to the manufacturers. So it is just so widespread, it's hard to say, exactly where each individual school district would be or parts of the country is. But I can tell you, I talked with with my colleagues across the country, and this is nationwide. This isn't just in Colorado. It is um, affecting all parts of our country uh, to different degrees. That's for sure.
1: Now, are you also having staff shortages in the cafeterias themselves?
0: Oh, yes. That's That's another very big piece of our challenges. And so when you don't have enough staff, then you try to streamline your menus. So normally at a secondary level, back in two or three years ago, secondary, that would be our middle and high schools, we would have probably six choices of food products there. And then our elementary, when the kids came through, we'd have three menu choices there. We are down to three choices, if we're lucky at the high school. If they're in a critical staffing need, they're down to two choices. And even um, at elementary, we're down to one to two choices. When we totally run out of staff, then we have to go to a boxed meal. We normally have about 400 to 450 employees, and we are down about 100 employees.
1: No, I understand the USDA is, for the second year in a row, uh, actually providing free breakfast and lunch to all schools uh, that participate in their national school lunch program. What is the impact or effect of that?
0: You know, that's an interesting question because in Jefferson County, we have seen an increase in participation. So on pre-COVID, we were serving anywhere from 28,000 to 30,000 meals a day, and I watch, obviously, I watch numbers every single day. We are now serving 42,000 meals a day on average, and it just keeps climbing. However, I do have some, some particular schools that I have seen drops in participation, So, uh, and I've heard of school districts that are experiencing drop-in participation. So that's kind of a mixed bag of where each district is operating at, but you are correct at this point in time, um, all schools that participate in the National School Lunch and Breakfast Program um, can have one breakfast and one lunch at no cost, all students.
1: Beth Wallace is the Executive Director for Food and Nutrition Services at Jeffco Schools. She's also the President of the National School Nutritional Association. Beth, thank you so much for talking with us today.
0: Erin, thank you so much.
1: That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll learn about a new research center at CSU that will study the potential health benefits of cannabinoids. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.